Christian school, but I don't know what it is. I just can't remember anything about like the talks that we had weekly, about the Bible or Bible studies that I, I had done or all that type of stuff. But one of the ones I do remember vividly was in Indian 9, probably about two years before I became a Christian. Um, one of our teachers got up just to our, our kind of year group. I think it was like yeah, year 9 at the time. And he, he spoke about love from the Bible. And I had never heard love talked about in that way before. Um, and one of the key things that he did was he just kind of defined love. Um, when the Bible talks about love, what is the Bible actually talking about? Because um, I don't even know this. In today's society, we use the word love a lot. And we use it for a bunch of different things. It's like the most malleable word. Like you can hear someone say they love, I don't know, that car, or they love dogs, or they love chocolate, or they love their spouse, or their children. Like the, the word's very malleable, uh, malleable. And more often than not, I think we can kind of throw it around carelessly to the point that it kind of loses its weight and meaning. Um, because we kind of just use it for everything, um, more or less. Um, but the ancient Greeks, and this is what the, the teacher told us, um, he kind of broke down how the ancient Greeks, um, and you know, a lot of the New Testament's written in Greek, um, like the kind of ways they use love. They have four different words for love. Um, there's a book called, fittingly, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Highly recommend that book. It's very small. It's easy to read. Pick it up if you want to kind of look at just this beautiful biblical picture of love. Um, but the, he kind of unpacks four words for love. And Mr. Lewis, um, just, he, he starts with um, defining, like, it's called, uh, I'm going to butcher it, I don't know, Greek, believe it or not, ancient Greek, how to say it, um, even though I'm at Bible college. Um, it's, I think it's storge or stoge, um, which is kind of the, like the first love, which is that, that, the affection you have for one another. Like brothers and sisters might fall into that, your friends, your church family, like they're not, you don't know them that well, but you, you, like, you love them in that way. Like they're your brothers and sisters. That, that, that affection that you have for someone. Or like, that affection you might have for like a pair of shoes or a jacket or a pet. Like, it's, that, it's not love where it's like, oh my gosh, like, I'll die for you. It's love how it's like, oh yeah, I like you. You're great. And then you go on to that and you have affilia, which is more like the, that's, the, that's the, hey, we're not, just, we're not just acquaintances, but we're friends. Like we're brothers. Like we've... Like our church, we've, we've journeyed through things together. We, we deeply care for one another. We want to build one another up and celebrate one another. You have similar interests and values. You care about the same things. You might have the same hobbies. You might go to the same church, be in the same GC. Like it's that kind of deeper love that you find there. And you have eros, which is a, the romantic or sexual love. Um, the way that they kind of use to describe this is like, it's when you're hungry for someone as vivid as that may be for people, like it's when you really desire someone, you love them in that way. It's, that's that image of a spouse or a loved one. Like you, you really desire them. And then you have what C.S. Lewis and what the Greeks argue is the highest of loves, and it's called agape. You might have heard that word before, you've been around churches. Um, agape, it's, it's, an, it's described as this self-sacrificial love or like this demonstration of love. Like, it's not just a word or inner feeling that you may feel when you see something that you like. But it's a demonstration of love. That's what agape is. And as you read this passage, as it was read out, every time it talks about love, it's talking about that love there. This self-sacrificial love. It's not talking about this, this I have a feeling, or I, I, the, the, you know, the bubblies inside of you, the butterflies. It's talking about this demonstration of love. And Paul is saying, love here isn't like saying, I love chocolate, or I love this, I love that. Like, it's much deeper and much more beautiful and profound than that. Like, it wasn't a feeling, it's an action. 
It's deeply self-sacrificial. And not only is it an action, it's just a way of living. It flows out. And as many of you are aware, I'm going to say this carefully, um, this is a passage read out weddings. I don't know if, you, if you've read this out of wedding, I'm not saying that's bad at all. This is a great passage for weddings. I just want to clarify that. But in saying that, this isn't meant to be some fluffy passage. Like Paul is actually rebuking a church who is walking in rebellion and sin, like a church that's not loving one another, not caring for one another. He, and he's not talking about this kind of, that love in that way, but he's talking to a messed up, jacked up church. Like, one, like the church in Corinth is a, is a broken church. So it's not meant to be some fluffy, feel-good passage while it, you can still use it. It's meant to be confrontational. Like it's meant to put a mirror on us and make us feel and make us evaluate how we love one another. Like it makes us think, are we like the Corinthians? Are we living in line with what this passage says love is? What love looks like? Because the church of Corinth was a very capable, very well-resourced, affluent church in an affluent city. The church had many gifted people in it, uh, but they made the mistake of thinking that their gifts, because they were good at things, equaled love. Like gifts equal being mature because you can do certain things. And Paul's point here is that you have these gifts, but use them for yourself. Like you have these gifts, but you don't use them with love. You're not using them for God's glory. And this, this chapter was never intended to be isolated. Like it's meant to be viewed in the lens of one Corinthians, where at least we're, uh, 12 Corinthians, sorry. One, <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that Lee spoke about last week, got there, so many numbers, um, where he kind of talked about the body, how we're one body, we're all gifted in different ways. He's wired us differently, gifted us in different ways to build up the body. Then you have uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about how love's a marrow that binds us together. Love is a thing that brings us together. And the next two sermons after this, in the next chapter, is, is Paul really unpacking what these gifts look like. But if we don't understand, and we don't wrap our head around what he's saying in chapter 13, We'll miss the point of chapter 14, and we won't do chapter 12 well. So this, this is an important passage. And this is the point of, this, uh, of chapter 13. It says that God has gifted us for love. Above all, God has gifted us for love. Love is the most important thing within a church family. Self-sacrificial love is the most important thing that we can be shown to one another. That's this kind of big idea. That's, that's the lens we should be viewing this chapter through. This passage is reminding us that we should be delighting and rejoicing in self-sacrificial love. More than growth, more than running services well, more than smoothness of gathering, having the best transitions, or running on time, or doing all those sorts of things. But love. Love is the marrow that binds us together. It's the glue. It's the core of what our church would be as a church, and as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. It's not about spiritual gifts. They're not the things that bind us, but love. There's a few things that we'll focus on today. The first one is the kind of distinctives of love. Then we'll look at the the transcendence of love and then the greatness of love. I don't normally do the three thing or do it well, alliteration. My brain doesn't work like that, but I did it today, um, doing the Lord's work. Um, But the first one is the distinctives of love. And Paul kind of starts this section. It wasn't in the Bible reading, because interestingly enough, I didn't realize this in preparing this sermon, 
the verse before, it's not actually a verse. It's just kind of this like in-between thing where he talks about how he goes from chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts and how we're a body. And then he says this line that's kind of this in-between bridging sentence where he says, I will show you the most excellent way. I'll show you a more excellent way, which is love. Love is the best way to go about how we approach the gifts that God's given us and how we use them. And Paul does this in verse 4, or in the first, um, first four verses, where he kind of like, he outlines the gifts that have been causing problems in the church up until this point. They're kind of more what we would call miraculous gifts, tongues, prophecy, um, words of knowledge. And he kind of outlines these, um, these gifts as distinct as they are. And he says, you can do all these cool things. You can do all the great things you do for God. You can use the gifts that you use in your church. But if you don't have love, like you might as well be doing nothing. Love is the glue that binds us together. It's the motivation that drives us in the way that we use our gifts and build up the church and glorify God. Like we can have the best structures or the best leadership development pipelines. We can have um, the most talented and gifted people in our church. We have the best, most entertaining, edifying Sunday gatherings. We could have the best midweek events that are fun, the best kind of vibrant community life. But if we didn't have love in any of that, Paul is saying, you might as well be doing nothing as followers of Jesus. If you can do all these things, if you can look like you're running things so well, but you don't love one another, you're not using the gifts that God's given you with love, you might as well be doing nothing. And then we see in verses 4 to 7 what he says about love. These are the distinctives. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, Paul's doing something quite clever here. Like at the same time, he's kind of extolling the beauties of love in this kind of stunning fashion. Like he's actually putting a finger on the, the problem of the Corinthian church because they weren't being patient. They weren't being kind to one another. They were being envious and boasting the gifts that God had given them. They had been dishonoring and being self-seeking. And we'll see in a few weeks that they were kind of walking away from the truth about the gospel. They were walking away from the resurrection and what that actually meant and what Jesus actually did. So Paul here is saying, you guys aren't doing this. And if you're a details person here, or you love English, I don't know, whatever one, um, you might have picked up during the reading that Paul doesn't, he, he doesn't use adjectives to describe love. love. He uses verbs. Again, showing us that it's not talking about some inner feeling or emotion towards one another. Love is not con- uh, conveyed only by words. You can't just say to someone, I love you, and then do nothing. It has to be shown. Love is only defined by not only what's said, but what is done. And love should deeply impact every aspect of the Christian life. But what does it actually mean for us? Like, what's it mean for us as we look at spiritual gifts? Because about 10 different sermons you can preach on how love should impact the Christian life. We're talking about spiritual gifts here and how the Spirit's give, uh, gifted us. How do these kind of 
distinctives impact what we do at Established Church, how we exercise the gifts that God's given us. How do we, like, how do we do, like, what's this shape as we seek to identify each other's gifts? Help to see each other built up and equipped to best unleash their gifts to build up the body and glorify God. I think one of the, the kind of, I'm only going to touch on one for the sake of time, but I think one that's often overlooked is patience and how we like, approach how we're gifted and how we love one another. Um, like finding out how God has wired you and gifted you, it takes time. Like something I've heard at established church throughout the five years that we've been going, particularly because we've got a lot of new Christians or people that might have not been to a church for a while and had a kind of reawakening in their journey with God. And they, they have the question, like how's God, how do I know how God's gifted me and wired me? Like how do I know what gifts I have? And this passage and what we'll see as we continue on throughout this series is that it takes time. It takes patience. It takes stepping out in faith and trying new things. Like whether it's prophecy or teaching or leading or administration or hospitality or evangelism or service or mercy, I can, you can, I can say the whole list. Any spiritual gift, like it takes time. And it takes a community to identify, build one another up, encourage one another. Like I'll, I'll use the experience from my own life. Like I said, I became, like I became a Christian, I think I was like 17, went to a youth group. And when I was 19, I preached my first ever sermon um, at our kind of one of our gatherings at my old church in the afternoon. And um, yeah, I was nervous. I've never put more effort into a sermon in my life. Mark Mitchell actually asked me to do it. I remember when I got the message, I was like so excited because I had people in my church who had encouraged me, uh, who I said that they think I'm gifted in this way, that I sh- they think I should try and teach the Bible in that way. And Mark gave me the opportunity, which speaks volumes about the leadership, giving people opportunities to step up. Um, I remember I probably poured out 40 hours into that sermon, memorized the manuscripts. I don't know what was going on. Like I'd I've never worked harder on something in my life, but I got up and I did it, and I, it went well. It went really well. God used it. He blessed people with it. People encouraged me and said, keep doing this. That worked well. Um, and I got too cocky, and then I preached my second sermon on Malachi, which I didn't even know I was a book pro at the time. Um, and I preached it, and it was probably one of the worst, to this day, I think it's the worst sermon I've ever preached. It's online somewhere. Don't listen to it. Um, I, can't, I can't put a finger on why it was the worst sermon. It just didn't, I don't know. I just, anyway, flashbacks. Um, but here's what happened, right? The church community, my friends, my leaders, they didn't come up to me and say, well, look, that was horrible. You're never doing that again. But they got alongside me and they said, we loved how you did this. This was really good how you did this. Maybe work on this. Keep doing this. And they gave me another chance. They were patient with me. They encouraged me. They gave me opportunities. They corrected me when I need to be corrected. But the big thing is, I was patient. I was, a, I was, a, I was 19. I was, an, I was a fairly young Christian. I think more often than not that we fall into having the opposite effect. We don't have the patience, whether it's ourselves and praying how, to see how God gifted us and in community working out what that looks like and trying and failing and trying again. Or how we treat one another and how we have patience for one another. If someone does something well at church and maybe one time they don't, it's having patience, having grace, being kind, being loving and building up. A big reason I'm in vocational ministry today is because people got alongside me, they encouraged me, they, they identified what they think is a way that God's gifted me, 
and they helped me fan that gift in the flame. Like if, if you see someone in our church family and you're like, hey, look, I think God's gifted in this way, say it to them, encourage them, help them work out what that looks like, have patience with them, build them up. Like I think we see, some, like if you see someone getting too kind of self-seeking or you think they're doing stuff for the wrong reason, get alongside them and see that's the case. Like it takes the, the church community to, to build a loving um, environment where we build one another up, where people are using their gifts to love God and glorify God and love one another. It takes time and work, but we just got to do it. We have to be patient. We have to get alongside one another. We have to show these kind of distinctives of love. It's not just talking about marriage, it's talking about community. It's talking about church family. We need to be patient, we need to be kind, not boasting or self-seeking, but rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. Like we, we need, in love, we need to best use our gifts that God has given us to build each other up and to glorify his name. And the second is the transcendence of love. Uh, look at verses 8 to 9 with me. It's in that little app. Um, that Lee mentioned as well, if you want to go there. It says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For if we know in part and we prophesy in part, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, I don't think here personally that Paul is saying that the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous and the, kind of the, the other ways that he, he kind of gives us and wired us by his Spirit, have ceased. Like I think, and like luckily outlined, there's room that the gifts of the Spirit have continued today and that he, well, some of them have continued today and that he gifts us and wires us to, to build up his body and to glorify his name. I and mean, they should be desired and pursued today. But he's making an important point that I think we can miss. And we are so focused on that. And that is, unlike love, spiritual gifts won't be around forever. Well, I believe they continue today and they should be sought after today. There will be a day where we won't need them. Like, think about it this way. I don't even know, last year, about iPhones and Android, there was this kind of, like, scandal in the technology world with phones, uh, where it kind of came out that the kind of big, major phone companies had built into their phones planned obsolescence, um, in the sense that one day they kind of fade away. They don't work anymore. And they did this for various reasons, some pretty nefarious reasons, um, but that the phone works today, but one day will be obsolete. While things back in the day were built to last a long time, I know people that still have their, like, their Motorola Razor flip phones and all that type of stuff, or Nokia Classic, can still have a nuclear blast. But phones today, like, they're, they're fragile. And they, a lot of companies are built in, and they're trying to reconcile that fact for marketing reasons, that yeah, one day they, they're built in for them to be obsolete. And in many ways, this passage is saying that spiritual gifts have that kind of planned obsolescence, not in the same like, weird, bad reasons that phone companies do it. But the reality is that we, we won't need them one day. That the church needs them now, and it builds up and glorifies God's name now. But one day it won't. On the day that Jesus comes back, like, they won't be needed in the new creation. On that day, they can't be scrapped as functionless, I think, that's what the passage is saying. That the gifts that God has given his people today, the spiritual gifts he's given us today, while they shine gloriously and brightly now when used well, 
one day they'll grow dim. Because they'll fade because nothing like that would be needed in heaven. When Jesus comes back, they would have served their purpose of helping build up the church and glorify his name during the wait of now, during this in-between time. At the end of this age, when Jesus returns, this won't be necessary. I think that's what Paul's saying here. And he illustrates this in verse 11 in the same way that he talks about a child. When you're a child, you do all these things. He's not associating gifts of the Spirit with being a child, like the maturity thing. He's not doing that at all. But he's painting the picture that when you're a kid, you do a lot of things. But when you become an adult, and you, you kind of step out of those things, and you kind of don't need those things anymore, they kind of fade off to the side. You don't need them. You step out of them into adulthood. In the same way that when we go from this world to the next, the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit won't be necessary anymore. And Paul says this in verse 12. I think this is a beautiful image, verse 12. He says, For now we see only a reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Connor's at the time, it was known for its kind of production of mirrors. I got a photo, because um, this blew my mind this week, right? When I thought of mirror, I thought mirrors that we have now, where it's like this crystal clear reflection, where you can see things. There's a photo there, the bronze, there it is. That's what a mirror was back then. It was made out of bronze. It wasn't this like foil and glass, with this perfect reflection. But they would polish bronze. And for them, like the whole thought of you look in a mirror now, it wasn't this crystal clear image. It wasn't this pure reflection. Like you could kind of only see glimpses. You saw part of things, like a blurry image. It's not meant to be super clear. And that's what this passage wants us to think of now. That we, we see this, like what we see now is through only a small reflection of God. Not him directly, not him fully. What we get in a mirror is only a reflection of the reality that is to come. Like a modern day example of this would be, like, imagine you go away on a long trip, right? You go away from your close friends or family or your spouse, and you have a photo of them. Like looking at that photo, you see them, you remember them, you know what they look like, you know about them, but you're not with them. You can't, like, you don't, you can't touch them. You don't have that feeling of being intimate, being face to face fully. You can do FaceTime, but it's not the same as actually being with the person. And that's what he what kind of wants us to think of now. Like this verse is saying, like for us, we can see God and Jesus through the Scriptures. We see him work through us as a church family. Like we talk to him in prayer. That's just a taste. That's just a little taste of the reality that is to come. But that one day, we're going to see him face to face. One day, Jesus is coming back. And we'll see him face to face and we'll experience the fullness of the glory of God and all his majesty. I don't know how you think about that. Like we'll see him face to face. Like staring at someone face to face is an intimate thing to do. I don't know if you've ever been on the train before and you're kind of like, I don't know, you're staring off into space or something or you're on your commute, whatever, however you get to work. I've done it before seeing next people in traffic, like when you look in the car next to you for some strange reason. You make eye contact and you realise looking at someone in the face and it's weird. You try and break it off because it's really intimate. Uh, if you haven't done it before, on the train tomorrow, do it. Just look someone in the eyes and just, it's, it's weird. You can't do it for long. Even doing it with someone who's close to you gets weird. 
right? Yeah. I, I, I'll do it. Turn to the person next to you for five seconds and just look them in the eyes. Do it. It's weird. It's awkward. Right? It's intimate. You're laughing because it's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you can't see. Um, but it's like, that's, that's the point. It's intimate. Okay, and, but one day we're going to see God face to face. And we won't feel embarrassed. We won't feel ashamed. We won't feel insecure. We're literally going to see him face to face. And this love that we feel, the glimpses that we get on our best days when we feel close to God, I think are just a, f- a foretaste of the, the majesty and the fullness of God that we're going to see one day. And that's what Paul's saying. These gifts that God has given us now, don't get so caught up in them that you lose sight of the reality that you're going to see him face to face one day. Like the passage says, not, like not only are we going to see him like a mirror, we're going to see him face to face. It says, I shall know fully, even as I am known fully. In the same way that God knows you completely, whether it's every thought you've ever had, or you've ever, like every thought you've ever thought throughout history, or going to think, um, your deepest sins, your highest lows, um, your highest heights, your lowest lows, your darkest valleys. Like God knows it intimately. God knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you. And there's a number of hairs in your head. If you were in a crowd of 7.5 billion people on earth, he could pull you out and call you by name. He knows everything. There's no secrets. In the same way that God is fully knows us, one day we're going to fully know him. The questions that we have now, that I have now, I hold on to the fact that one day they're not probably going to matter as much. I'm going to see him face to face. I'm going to know him completely. Like Paul is saying there's many good things about this life and gifts that God has given us, but compared to that moment that's to come, they pale in comparison. Like this moment is an incomplete reflection compared to the, the reality we're going to see one day. Gifts are a sign point, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are a signpost pointing to the, the greater thing, which is God. Gifts will end, but love continues. And Paul finishes real quick in verse 13 um, with the greatness of love. He says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Paul isn't saying here that love is a spiritual gift, but it's an entire way of life that we all have. It's not just given to a few, but to each and every one of us. Like Gifts are significant for the church, but love is supreme. Gifts are temporary, but love is eternal. What we thought we knew, we will know more fully one day. What we thought we fully knew, we'll see. It will come to this full, beautiful picture. And love will endure through it all. Love is the greatest of these things because it transcends this world. That's what Paul means here. We won't need faith and hope when we're literally standing before God. But we'll still have love. One hymn puts it this way. It says, Faith will vanish into sight. Hope will be emptied into delight. Love will shine more bright. That's what it's saying. 
Like I once heard it described like this. Imagine the church as an orchestra. I don't want you to really hold on to this image and think about this as we go forward over the next two sermons. Like imagine the church as an orchestra. Like we all have different tools and instruments. Um, we have different roles in kind of building up the church and kind of building up the music. But we all have the same sheet music. We make the same music. Like you might be a cello, you might be a triangle player, you might be a singer or like a violin, whatever. We all have different instruments, but it contributes to the big picture, to the one piece of music. And you need all the parts of the orchestra to be using their musical gifts to make this music full. And this passage is saying that God is he's pulling all the instruments together. Unique in design, unique in contribution. And he's pulling them onto the same sheet music. And we see here that love is the music of heaven. That's the music as a church we should be making. Together, as we come together, as we use our gifts, as we seek to build up the body and glorify God, love is the, the thing that binds it all together. This passage is so crucial for us as a church to be and do what God has created the church to be and do. Like he says in, in John 13, that we need to live and live out God's love in this way. He says, by this, everyone know that you are my disciples. This is Jesus. By, if you love one another. One, main, um, one, of, the main worlds, one of the main ways the world is going to know who we are and who we worship is by how we love. Not by the cool things we can do or the gifts that we have, but how we love one another. They don't know it truly follows a Christ because we love or strive to love like Christ loves. Love is the music of heaven that captures the attention of the whole world. Love is the point, it's the heart of the cross. As followers of Jesus, it flows from God through us and transcends his life in a way that spiritual gifts don't. Our prayer as a church needs to be that as people who are captivated and in awe of God's love for us, that we need to love others and radically live it out ourselves in how we practice the gifts that God's given us. That people will know that the one who is love, the one who is patient, the one who is kind, the one who doesn't envy, doesn't delight in evil, the one who is the truth, the one who has shown the ultimate sacrifice, um, the ultimate agape love for us by dying on the cross for us. He invites us in to walk with him, to love like he does, self-sacrificially in a way that's focused on God the Father, building his name up. Like I, I pray that we can be that as a church. Like let's be that as a church family, one that walks in love, loves one another, seeks to build one another up and glorify his name because he gives us for love. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you that you first loved us and cared for us and you sent your son to die on the cross for us. That you know us by name, that one day we're going to fully know you and see you. Father, thank you for the various ways that you've gifted us in our church family. The gifts you've given us by your spirit. Father, help us use them to glorify your name, to love others, to build one another up, to build your church up. But Father, help us never make them into our God. Help us not love 
or seek to build ourselves up by the way that you've given us and wired us. Father, we long to see your name built up, your name glorified. Father, make us less of the church so we can make you more. Father, we pray that you use us. Help us live out in a radical way the way that you've loved us. I mean, Father, we pray this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.